My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Code Cubit, founding partner of Mistral Venture Partners, and I'm excited to host a series on building an enduring investment firm. Let's hear from my guest today. Well, look, Harry, I, I, the, the, the goal of this call really is more than anything looking to think about how to grow a firm to become an enduring firm, right? JMI, 30 years old, just about really impressive track record. More than anything, you've outlasted, you know, the majority of your peers, right? There's very few firms. Lots of firms get started and then raise a fund two, perhaps, and maybe even a fund three. But to have the staying power to go through multiple decades and cycles and teams, et cetera, is a, is a serious accomplishment. And so what, I, what I'd love to spend the next half hour doing is really just kind of teasing that apart. But maybe we can, if you don't mind here, just go all the way back to the beginning. I'm curious, you know, you have a, an undergraduate in history and then you became a software engineer. I'd love to hear that transitional story. Well, happy, happy to come. Let me just start by saying that we've had the good fortune. <laughs> when, I, when I got out of college and started in the um, financial world was 1982 and the Dow was at 700. Wow. wow. <laughs> and um, interest rates were 18%. Software was emerging. So uh, I uh, professionally and JMI as a firm have been the beneficiary of equities compounding dramatically in return and interest rates going from 18% to zero. Right. right. So that's uh, as Woody Allen would say, you know, 80% of life is showing up. And we, <laughs> we kept showing up in a very fortuitous time to be, you know, um, investing in equities and software in particular and software, as you know, well, has exploded. So, yeah, I started. So that is a backdrop, you know, better to have the wind at your back than in your face. And I think that's a sort of fundamental part of what you do and, and what and what we do at JMI. So, yeah, I graduated in, in 1981 in history. I spent a year in in the UK working in research and in parliament and uh i was a soccer player in college so uh, it was a good opportunity to do that and then i came back and got a job in a technology group in an investment bank in new york went and got an mba and then after that found a firm in baltimore called alex brown and sons that was one at the time was known as one of the four horsemen mm -hmm. with hambrecht and quist and robertson stevens and L.F. Rothschild, forgive me if this is ancient history. No, it's fascinating. It's great. <laughs> but we, you know, software w was emerging there, and it was becoming from what was, um, software was written by big companies, defense companies, IBM, you know, sort of proprietary systems. And it was, there was a, a lot of curiosity in whether software could become an industry that could scale or whether these were 
a collection of artisans, you know, right. that were were not businesses, but more like uh, a, a collection of uh, product authors or or that kind of thing. It was a hobby at the time, almost. And it was and it was evolving as an industry, and so we had the good fortune in the um, '80s to be uh, grow with the industry professionally and and watched um, and at Alex Brown we took Microsoft Public and Oracle and BMC and Ashton Tate and you know a lot of the <laughs> old companies some a, a few still with us um, mm-hmm. most have been acquired of course and so we called on literally thousands of companies we you know get get up Monday morning get on an airplane go visit a lot of companies and and I was in the M&A group my partner Charlie Knoll was in the um, corporate finance group. So we were sort of partners for a number of years in in this initiative. And so that's how I got involved really in the software industry. And then in the early 90s, we had a client named John Moore's, JM, was that from JMI, John Moore's Investments, JMI. And John had founded BMC Software, which is a big, at the time, system software, mainframe software company in, um, in Sugarland, Texas, outside of Houston. And John was interested in leaving the company had, he'd started, had been wildly successful. We'd taken it public and he wanted to retire from that and felt that the best years of soft in software were ahead. And he wanted to invest in that and as well as do other things. And so my partner, Charlie joined him to run his family office, which included this venture capital initiative. And I joined uh, to sort of help drive that. So Charlie was off buying the San Diego Padres and you know, <laughs> building a, a real estate initiative and oil and gas and other sort of private initiatives, as well as helping coordinate all of John's nonprofits initi- uh, initiatives. So we learned a ton from John. John was a software developer and he really believed in small teams of highly, really top developers who were really smart. So it was sort of the beginning uh, of agile development in, in, in many ways. And so we learned a lot from John about where wealth was created in this industry. And it, it began with great, great developers and great products. I'm curious, did you, did you have a sense or... Like I'll admit, I graduated university in the mid '90s, and yeah. and the internet was just coming. And I, you know, with with some shame, say that I, I didn't see it. You know, in a sense, like I, I went to IBM as an engineer, and then I went to Siena in Baltimore, where you are, and I still didn't see it. And it yeah. wasn't until probably the you know late '90s, early 2000s, where I said, "Oh my gosh, this is yeah. this is a game changer." But you had started 15 years earlier. You know, was it was it obvious to you that this was a long, you know, standing trend that was going to yield for for decades? Yes, I'd I'd like to say we, you know, were on it, you know, uh, from the the beginning of of sort of spyglass and mosaic and, and 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 even before, but we were a little a little behind that. Remember, we, you know, the heritage was mainframe software. So, right, so right. we weren't really as well positioned to jump on those trends earlier. And I'll talk about the advantages and disadvantages of that, you know, as we go on. But we're close enough to it to see 
see what was happening. We started with a real focus on business to business software and more infrastructure in those days, which evolved to become more vertically oriented software and application software over time. But the one thing that we could see and had seen moving from mainframe to mini computers and the microcomputer, you know, I really got involved right when the IBM PC came out in 1982. So we had seen platform shifts. So we understood that very well. When Mosaic came out, it became clear there was a ton of opportunity. Now, a lot of it was sort of consumer facing and not our thing. And so we were a little later than we wish we had been, but close enough to it to see, you know, see an explosion in through the middle 90s. So I I really hadn't gotten on the Internet probably until 1993 or, or maybe maybe like that. So. Got it. So the internet was really kind of another layer on top of software, more of a delivery mechanism than an underlying. That's what we. That's what we saw, and, and we saw. You know, the things that mattered there were the on ramps at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. how do you get on? And then, you know, what contents available? So the things, you know, the ISPs were were important. The browsers were important things that, you know, are obviously not today in in our world. So there. There had for sure been a lot of evolution. And the reason that's important from our perspective is when people, when the industry was in full hormone pump around (laughs) the internet in the the, uh, late 90s, we were kind of just doing our thing. And so the the businesses that were non-businesses that colleagues and friends made enormous amounts of money on we missed. But on the other hand, some of those businesses were never real businesses anyway. And so the sort of hangover effect in 2001 and two and three, we muscled through that very nicely. I don't know if that was, uh, that was clear, but so we did great, but not on a relative base, on an absolute basis in the late 90s. It wasn't our, our best sort of fun performance. We were sort of more second quartile. But then, you know, from 2001 to 2004, when firms were going out of business and not returning capital, you know, we did, you know, really, really well on a, on a relative basis. So part of being in Baltimore and ultimately in San Diego. So John left uh, Houston where he was and, and moved to San Diego when he bought the San Diego Padres. So we opened an office there and we were in the sort of non-centers at the time of, of software development, which was definitely more in Silicon Valley and in Boston. So it, it had disadvantages of not being in the middle, but it had the advantage of we sort of kept, were able to sort of keep true to what we were about and not get distracted by, you know, the latest trend du jour. So there were pros and and cons. Had we been yeah. earlier stage investors, I think it would have been less, more a, a harm than a help. But for where we were, as we moved to, you know, we were all always um, what we called it those days, stage agnostic investors. So it was more the predecessor of the growth equity stage. Got it. You know, that, that, that's really insightful and resonates with me. We had our AGM last week, and, and one of the comments that came up was that 
you know, we are not investing in social networks or the, the next sexy sizzly thing uh, where we try to play is consistent, you know, triples and quads, kind of the boring software that makes the, the world run as opposed to the sizzly stuff that talks to consumers. And it sounds yeah. like you had that discipline as well. How, like, I'm curious, in, in 1999, when, when the world's exploding on internet, you know, opium, did you think twice? Did you want to pivot? It was a challenge uh, at the time, but we, we, I think if we got one thing right, and I don't think we'd have had the conviction to do that had we been sitting in Silicon Valley. We, we also would have made more money in, in that fund and probably done much worse in the subsequent, subsequent one. So there are definitely pros and cons. So yeah, I remember talking to you know, good friends in Silicon Valley. They said, Gruner, what are you investing in? And we just invested in a company that sold software to nonprofits, you know, and, and it would be like, you're, you're what? And, and yeah, it's a nonprofits click, you know, I mean, it was, and you know, there, that was blackboard at the time. And we bought the company with another partner, Hellman and Freeman. And, um, you know, the company was about, it was bigger for us. So it was the first, you know, sort of bigger software company. We'd, but, but, you know, through a very difficult period of time, it had staying power. And so we could get through a period of time where software was not invested in. Organizations didn't have capital to invest in, in technology. And so everyone pulled back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we probably made three and a half times our money and 20% plus returns. It was a good, solid investment that could weather through difficult periods. And that brings me to one thing. I think if you're investors in technology, I think actually technology is a very efficient way to lose money investing in technology. And I think you have to have a sensibility around cycles and where you are in a technology or macro cycle, because you know, the way software is bought and sold changes, you know, pretty dramatically depending on where people are. And there we were in 2000, what was it, March of 2000, till pretty much Q3 of 2002. So, you know, that's about eight or nine quarters of of yep. really no no innovation. No Companies were not, and we're B2B, right? So right. there was no innovation uh, that was just how do I keep the lights on in, in spending on uh, technology? And for us, that period of time was much more difficult, where 75% of the value came out of the NASDAQ than the Great Recession of 08 or 09. You know, that was like a bubble bath compared to, you know, right. the inter- internet bubble of, 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 of bursting. And we, we navigated through that pretty well. And I give you know, I give us um, have, having the advantage of not being in the middle of Silicon Valley, I think, helped us through through that period of time. So the, the lesson there is, you know, pick a thesis that has long term legs, be consistent and disciplined about sticking to your knitting and not chasing the next fancy thing that, that strolls along. For, for us, it was. Yeah. Now, look, I will say, Code, I think the best business in the private investing in private companies in that in the continuum from. Blackstone, KKR, all the way down to, you know, seed stage. I think the best business and the best investors are those that are in Silicon Valley and are at the top of their field. 
I, I think that that is a special business. I think there are a handful of firms that are really good at it. And we just happened to be not, not it wasn't, yeah. a, wasn't our business. So we tried instead of trying to be not, you know, good at something that we didn't have any advantages for, we tried to, you know, participate in a way that we thought would bring us, you know, advantage. I don't know if that was was here, but I have uh, clear, but I have great admiration for those firms and my friends at those firms sit in conference rooms and visit companies and they have companies come through all all day, every day, and they see so many early stage and have such deep, rich networks that they can manage to find their way invested into the one out of 10 that, that can really yeah. uh, explode. Right. I think that I think the stats are that you know it's 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 less than three or four percent of firms that are consistently in the top decile. So there's a very special podium for that type of firm, and you know all due respect that you know most of them are in the valley and they're looking for these outsized returns right. and and you know unicorns etc. But for the vast majority of the hundreds and hundreds of other firms out there, you have to find a different niche unless you have special access, as you say. That's it. And, and we decided we weren't going to do the CD round for Sequoia. That wasn't our thing. Mm-hmm. We were going to more control our destiny and go, you know, find companies that had, had not, you know, they're, they're all all over North America and Canada. We've done, I yeah, think, 13 investments in, in Canada. It's been very successful, fertile ground for us. And, you know, our companies have been in Iowa and Atlanta and, you know. Um, right. Um, Nebraska and Colorado and Calgary and you know all over all over sure. the country. So. Yeah, Silicon Valley doesn't have a monopoly on on smart entrepreneurs. That's for sure. For sure, and as software development and computer science programs, academic programs have have, have gotten more robust, and tools from Microsoft and and others have extra, extrapolated a lot of the plumbing. We used to spend. Most of our R and D dollars on stuff customers would never ever see, you mm-hmm. know, sort of plumbing. Now a lot of that's done for you. So right. entrepreneurs, you know, if they understand workflows and trans how transactions move in an industry, you know, they're better situated and can get a product to market for less money. And we spend our time with a lot of those types of folks. Got it. Makes sense. So shifting gears a little bit, you started out um, effectively running a family office, JMI kind of one. Um, how big was that? Was that a fund or was it? An- yeah, it was all the family's money. It was actually two funds because there have been a number of, you know, family, di- you know, divorces and stuff. So it was <laughs> sure. a $30 million fund. And then we sort of added on a $20 million fund. We kept it together. And the Moore's family was all all that capital. And families, John is just such a special person. We learned so, so much from him and a great, just a great man. But, you know, families are complicated. And so it it was pretty clear to him and to us that we would be best served, that he would be an anchor tenant and we would go get other capital. So we started with, you know, calling people we knew and we added other families. So we went sort of from that sort of 50 million to 86 million, I think, was our next fund, which was technically JMI three. And then um, that was in uh, 97, 98 code. And then so that was the fund I'm talking about that was relatively not top, but 
absolute, it was a good fund. And then JMI four was, you know, sort of right in the middle of the uh, meltdown, right. which we did pretty well by the end. And then JMI five was in 2005. And then we morphed it from families to institutions. Got it. So you had set a track record of smaller funds with results to build the track record and then attract institutions. And that's the advice I give to young entrepreneurs who want to get into the venture business and hang out a shingle. Get in business, you know, so start yep. with whatever it takes to, to build a track record and build your muscles and then, you know, do a good job. <laughs> and, yeah. and then the capital will find you. I also... Uh, advice I also give is you're always working on the next fund. So as you fundraise for this fund, you're telling people what you're going to do. There aren't that many when you're getting out folks who are going to, or at least for us, who are going to just invest in a, in a new fund with folks with limited track records. So you tell them what you're going to do, and then you keep showing up, keep coming yeah. back. And we've just worn down people over time where we just keep showing up and have performed the way we told them we would. So we're always thinking about that that next fund, always bringing people along, always calling on them, you know, trying to provide some insight. I like that a lot. I mean, you know, we're we're just now tapping into institutions after nine years. Yeah. And having built a track record, and so they, you're right, they, they start getting attracted and they go, okay, you're not going away anytime soon and, and you keep keep hassling me, so I better invest. Yeah, right. Did you know, I mean, you went from, let's say this 30, you know, $50 million beginning to 1.7 billion. Like, did you have that in mind early on or was it, is it just, you're thinking one horizon ahead? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking a little more one horizon. I, I, I think the best way to be a good investor is to be brilliant. The second best way is to go work for someone who's brilliant, right? Okay. I didn't have the beneficiary of the former, and my colleagues didn't have the beneficiary of the latter. So we kind of just had to keep figuring it out, right, and putting one foot in front of the other and getting better. And I think it's there's no magic to this. I think if you keep showing up and learning your lessons and keep just incrementally getting better every day, you know, a thousand little things just keep pushing and getting better, you know, you can build a career doing it. But I, I stand by that, you know, to go work for Warren Buffett would be a better way to do that. Or to be Warren Buffett would be sure. a, better, a better way than, than what we've, what, the, the path we've chosen. We just didn't have that, that luxury. So that's, that's fair. Humility goes a long way, too. I, and so in, in terms of as you got bigger and bigger funds, you had to build out your team. Talk about that a little bit. Well, we violated the rules we give to um, our companies, which our companies tend to be a little parochial. They look inside, they hire the guy who they played hockey with, or you know, or their neighbor who was, the, or the son of this person. And what we try and do is to not, as we say, fish off the pier and go mm -hmm. get. If you're hiring, you know, a VP of marketing, we want to get, you know, a really high quality person. Um, not the person we know. So we didn't do that. <laughs> what we did code was we hired really talented people that we had worked with basically for the, in those earlier years. And so the advantage, we had the advantage of, we were collegial and collaborative. My partner, Paul Barber, who joined us in 98, uh, coined the um, 
we were interested in the foundation of our culture being a collegial meritocracy, right? So that's sort of how we came at it. So, um, and over time, then we built a recruiting engine to hire folks in three on-ramps right out of school in college, Mm -hmm. two or three years out from investment banks and consulting firms and industry and then sometimes MBAs. And so then we became, you know, not a lateral higher place. You know, we became a place that grew from the beginning. And this generation of investors that is going to, is taking over the firm have been with us for 12, 14, you know, 15 years and started in their early 20s. So it has the advantage of where people care about each other and there's a fabric of, of trust and you can make a mistake and, and people, you know, trust you because uh, we all we all make make mistakes. So, yeah, you touch on something interesting there. And I love the I love the expression of collegial meritocracy. Right. Mm-hmm. This is a hard business. You have to earn your, your seat every day, so to speak. How do you go through? And I'm sure that happens right where, you know, one partner makes a big mistake and maybe makes two or three in a row. And um, and yet you're the rainmaker that year or that half decade, let's say. How do you get through that and keep that rapport and trust going? Yeah, I think it's hard. Where we started with was, you know, very much a small team. You know, we thought of ourselves as kind of, (laughs) uh, you know, probably inappropriately, but we're we're like this Navy SEAL team, you know, that uh, we work together. It's all team. No one gets credit. You know, we just are doing it together, kind of. And you outgrow that. And I was... um, behind on this. My partner, Paul, was, you move from that to everyone's accountable to each other and you all, everyone has a body of work, right? And so you have to begin to track all that. We were probably late doing all that. And so we did have some challenges with that and um, some tough decisions. And then we had some folks retire, you know, who had been successful. So we lost a, a little bit of a generation uh, mm-hmm. We had a few folks that went off and started their own fund. And I think if you're successful, you've got to expect some amount of that. So I think that what you put your, that's a, the hardest question as you evolve, or at least we did from, you know, sort of this close knit group to a body of work and we're all accountable and we're clinical right. and data is data. And it's not about being insecure, defensive, or feelings, and you know, it's not that you're a bad person. It just is this a, a good investment or not a good investment. It's about results, and and is there and clearly you've added more process, as you say, it was is a sort of collegial group initially, partnership, all for one, one for all, and then as you added these these additional streams for adding headcount, and, and obviously you're a large organization now. I assume you added a lot more process in terms of. KPIs and measuring. We did. And I think that's important anyway, because I think, um, you know, people are wired differently. They're the um, the skeptics. And then there's the, you know, what I call the Labrador let out of the station wagon, you know, where everything's great, you know, and, and running around. And I think that you have to have some retraceable logic about what you're about and, and what you're not about. And uh, it can't be the deal of the moment, or at least for us, Code, that was it. We uh, are, are very, very focused on what we are, which is, you know, B2B software. 
Um, we work with a lot of young entrepreneurs and first-time CEOs who have built businesses to 5, 10, 15 million and are looking to take them to 100 million. And the trade craft of building a software company every day is the, a new day and the farthest along they've been on that journey. So mm-hmm. someone that, like us can be a pretty good partner for s- someone who's a domain expert who really understands a market and a and the product market fit part of it. It can be a powerful combination when we get it right. But I, I don't know if that was responsive to your question. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I, I'm curious too, as you've as you've grown the firm and added process, you know, one of the things that comes with with bigger AUM is bigger fees and bigger resources. And one of the things you're known for is your marketing council, right? So your forums at different levels of an organization where you're bringing these folks together. Did you try and and navigate around that to create the differentiation for JMI? Like you are B2B software, very well known, very successful, but that doesn't happen overnight. What tricks and well, tips? Well, for, for us, yeah, that, that was very conscious. I mean, for, from a process standpoint, we added a lot of process in, in our, you know, this retraceable logic notion. So just in how we would report on, on how we, you know, we're a, a sourcing culture, you know, and so we we measure our pipeline of activity and where we're spending time and where's productive. And we have, you know, sort of teams that are, are pointed against different parts of the market. We want to cover the whole B2B market. Some parts of the market are less interesting than the other. So we measure all that and we manage all that. And then um, as deals get more interesting, we have tiers of thinking about that. And then once we invest, we have process around how we conduct diligence and outside, you know, firms that help us with market work. And so we spend a lot of money and, and time through that process piece. And I can come back to the, the negative part of that, right, which is an important one. Don't yeah. let me for, forget that. And then going forward after we invest and as the final part of diligence, you know, we entrepreneurs want want help but they don't want a binder (laughs) and say, you know, and this is, you know, the reason I started this company was to not have someone come down with a binder and and suck the soul out of the company. That's, that's not what I'm about, but they want to, you know, have help for the trade craft of how do you make sure sales and marketing are working very tightly. And if you don't have product management, it was all the founder. How do you shoehorn that in? And how do product management and product development work in a collaborative way? And how do you not build, you know, purpose-built silos, you know, functionally that don't, you know, really react well to customer needs? So all those kinds of things was very clear to us that we could be helpful and we had to build it for the business we were in, right? Which was working with entrepreneurs, many who had not been on that journey mm-hmm. before. Yeah, that's helpful. I, let's go back to the drawbacks, though, the lessons learned in the negative part. Yeah. So look, I mean, part of, um, and so you fire, hire analytical people and what do they like? They like data. We all like data. Why do you like data? Because it gives you comfort. Surety, and yeah. what's data about? It's mostly looking backwards, right? And so what our younger folks left to their own devices will spend a lot of time in data and that's all good and then extrapolate it based on the trends going forward and and so it becomes a crutch 
and we tend to believe it all, and it's of varying qualities, and some of it is very useful, and some of it is downright misleading. So the, the, as our team gets more experienced, they can look forward and think through how that data informs them of what's going to happen in the next five years, mm -hmm. right? And not that history, it's extrapolated on an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, that's a good point. Necessarily. So, and we work on that, you know, we work on that and it, it takes time and you have to have courage and you have to be able to make a mistake or two, you know, in this business to, to be a good investor. And what we try and do is when we make a mistake, we don't make a zero, you know, we make a mistake and we're later states. So right. we, right. we can't afford to make too many of those. Right. So, but when we make a mistake, we get our money back or we, make 80 cents or we make a dollar 50 or, right. you know, right. so that kind of thing. Got it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We're in the crystal ball industry, not in the, in the binoculars industry, right? It's. Yes. I think and you guys live in it as well. So culturally um, it takes, it takes courage. It takes experience. It takes reps. It takes, you know, thinking a little bit yeah. different. So, My and we've had successful code invest investors who are, you know, more data driven and they're just narrower. The kind of deals they're looking at will be ones that have a lower volatility, lower range of outcomes. And those are, you know, good investors and useful folks too, but they're less likely to find an outside gain and they're less likely to to make a, a big mistake too. So right. it, it's sort of a balance of it's, it's threading that conservatism and risk-taking sort of profile that, that you're trying to sell to your investors. Right. As yeah. you, I, m last question from me is, is really, as you think about the future and the legacy of the firm and the responsibility and, and weight of your LP trust and, and relationships and passing the torch to the next generation, how do you go about thinking about doing that in terms of do you share more equity with the younger folks and give them more responsibility over time? How do you think about the next 10 years or, or even 20? Well, we've been working. Um, first, I think you got to decide what you want to do, whether that's important to you or not. I think no is a fine answer. It just wasn't. We were interested in building a multi-generational mm -hmm. firm. So that was we were lined up against that. We wanted to provide the opportunity that we've been provided to the next generation and beyond. So. That was important to us. I think the first thing, the most important is attribution. <laughs> so the next generation has to have the opportunity to build track record. So that's the most important. And it's hard to imagine that good people will stay around having done that if they don't have economics commensurate with their talents and their success. So that's foundational. Those two are foundational. Also, experience and relative responsibilities in the firm, not just and and clarity on decision making. People want to be part of the uh, deciding the future and not have it happen to them. So, spreading out responsibilities, spreading out um, economics, and making sure people have attribution. Stepping back and trying to be helpful, keeping people off the cliff, you know, so it's a, it's a delicate minuet. I mean, to, to navigate all that 
choreography. We all want to come in and, and sometimes that's not the answer, but if you disappear, you know, that's probably not the answer anyway. So how do you do that? So for us, we decided it's going to take time. So it's not overnight. What's time? You know, you got to begin thinking about this more than five years. Right. Right. And it's going to be evolutionary, not revolutionary. And if we're doing our jobs right, the succession should be obvious. It shouldn't be, you know, people, you know, sort of looking at, wow, that's kind of weird. So, and I don't think it's, I think it's hard to run these places without a strong track record of an investment. That is not a sufficient condition. Right, right. (laughs) I think you also have to be the glue, the culture carrier, you know, have the interest in a leadership position and making other people successful. I think that all those things are are important. And some of our team are great teammates and, and they're good leaders of smaller groups, but they're just not, they'd rather work with companies and build companies than do a lot of the, uh, they want opinions on it, but they just want, don't want to spend all their, as much time, time on that. Some of the HR things and recruiting and kind of thing. So that's okay. You know, we make sure the economics reflect that the management economics really aren't the thing. The thing, the economics are really the investment part and uh, a necessary part of what we do is all the other stuff too. Right. The back office stuff. What, what really resonated with me is what you just said around, it should be obvious. And, and I've, I've long sort of felt that leadership is, is easy to see, but it's very hard to measure. And, yeah. uh, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when a leader walks in a room, you, you recognize them right away. You turn your head, you yeah. listen carefully. Um, and so that's clearly a key ingredient. This is great, Harry. I'm going to, I'll, I'll let you go here, but maybe uh, just parting words of wisdom or advice for aspiring, you know, fund managers and, and uh, GPs. I think there's a certain perseverance that's been important in the soul of our place, right? And part of that is always thinking about the future of the firm, not putting the firm in extremis or, you know, at risk that we can make a bad investment, we can make a bad hire, we can make a mistake, but we're always in a measured way moving the firm forward. We're not putting the firm at risk, existential risk. And if you do that, if you keep showing up, if you decide you're going to get better every day, you know, if you focus on a, a thousand little things, for us, that has seemed to work. We were not the big macro new, new thing, folks, that wasn't our thing. So we just decided what we were and kept getting better at it. And we had, as I started by saying, we had the good fortune, which is probably more to do with it, code than anything, of starting when the market was low and interest rates were high and software was small and now it's big. So we kept showing up in a period of time with the wind at our back. I like it. I'll take I'll take luck any day of the week if it's offered up. So... Yeah. Harry, thank you again. Yeah. Uh, this is this is amazing. Lots of wisdom in there. I'm super grateful for the time. Thank you again. Thanks, Code. Take care. Okay. Bye for now. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Coffin Fellows. 